Hello and welcome to the Lancet Oncology June 2010 podcast. I'm Erica Niesner and I'm here with Emma Granger, Deputy Editor of the Lancet Oncology. Today we're looking at papers on lung cancer and breast cancer and Emma will also be giving us some highlights from this month's issue. First, looking at a phase 3 study of the use of allotinib as maintenance treatment for non-small cell lung cancer. Emma, what is the theory behind the use of maintenance treatment? Well, maintenance treatment can be thought of as a bridge between first and second line treatment. So the traditional way to treat patients is to give them first line treatment and then for those that are experiencing stable disease or have a response that's like a partial or complete response. You then hold off the second line treatment until the patient has clinically progressed and then you start active treatment. So the theory behind maintenance treatment is to start this active therapy straight away after the completion of the first line treatment and this is with the aim to delay progression time. Now this study focused on allotinib. Why the use of this particular drug for maintenance treatment? Well allotinib is an EGFR inhibitor and it's used in both the first and second line settings in non-small cell lung cancer which is the cancer that's being treated in this trial. And this cancer typically consists of adenocarcinomas and squamous cell cancers. So as I mentioned, it's an EGFR inhibitor that's most commonly used in the second line setting. But like gefetinib, which is the first generation of this drug class in this setting, it's believed that patients with EGFR mutation positive tumours should benefit particularly from this drug. So could you put this into context for us in terms of the study that's reported in this issue of the journal? We report in the issue the first use, that's at least to our knowledge, of a molecularly targeted agent as a maintenance therapy in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. So the trial we report is the SATIN trial, which some of the listeners might have heard of. And it randomly assigned patients with at least stable disease after their first-line chemotherapy treatment. And this was nearly 900 patients, and they were assigned to either allotinib at 150 mg per day or placebo. Now, the primary endpoint of the trial was progression-free survival because, as I mentioned, the aim of maintenance is, is to delay this progression time. So the primary endpoint was a co-endpoint, both in the whole patient group and also in those with EGFR-positive disease. This was a Phase three study which found a significant result for progression-free survival of patients taking allotinib versus placebo. Should maintenance therapy be considered for these patients? Yes, as you say, the findings were significant and the findings were 12.3 weeks median progression-free survival in the allotinib group and this compared with 11.1 weeks for the placebo group and the hazard ratio was 0.71. And for those with mutation-positive disease, as I mentioned, it was a co-end point, the primary end point. And it should be pointed out to listeners that this was only a small proportion of the patients. The results were the same at 12.3 and 11.1 weeks, with a hazard ratio of 0.69. So this sounds quite a small difference, but it should be remembered that these patients have a very poor prognosis and the benefit is not just in terms of the progression-free survival. There were post-hoc analyses in the trial, and these showed that when allotinib was given to the patients, they had a longer time to experiencing pain and to analgesic use. And quality of life was similar between the two groups, but the 12-week disease control rate, which is an important parameter in this setting, was around 40% for the allotinib group, compared to 27% for the placebo-treated group. And the proportion that were progression-free at six months, another very important parameter, was 25% versus 15 So should maintenance therapy be considered for these patients? 
Well, last year, The Lancet published a trial of maintenance therapy, and this was using an antifolate called pemetrexate. And also last year, the Journal of Clinical Oncology published a trial by Phidias and colleagues, and this looked at delayed versus intermediate docetaxel in patients that have been given first-line chemotherapy, in this case gemcitabine and carboplatin. So both of these trials showed a benefit for PFS, progression-free survival, and the pemetrexate maintenance trial also showed a benefit for overall survival, which was the secondary endpoint of the trial. So overall survival in our trial that we report in the issue was also significantly different, Although, of course, the findings are always very difficult to interpret for overall survival because you have to interpret them in light of the differing second-line treatments that the patients have received. And in the Saturn trial that we report, more patients in the placebo group went on to receive the EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors as a second-line treatment than did those in the allotinib group. So it's very difficult to interpret the overall survival results. So the authors of our paper speculate that maintenance therapy improves the progression-free survival in all of these trials, possibly due to differences in the proportion that are then able to go on and get their second-line treatment. And one of the theories behind the use of maintenance therapy is to allow more patients to receive this second-line treatment. So if they're given therapy while their disease is still controlled, rather than waiting for symptomatic progression, a greater proportion of patients can receive the second-line treatment. So, for example, in the Pemetrexit trial, about a third in the placebo group received only one line of treatment, and this compared with over half of the patients in the Pemetrexit group receiving at least three lines of treatment. And in the study by Phidias and colleagues that I mentioned, 37% in the delayed treatment group did not receive docetaxel, and this compared with only 5% in the immediate treatment group. Are there other issues that we should be considering when interpreting these results? Then one of those points is toxicity. So it's important to assess the improvement in the progression-free survival and also the delay in pain, um, in patients experiencing pain and the increased likelihood of receiving second-line therapy in light of any additional toxicities that you, of course, will be receiving if you're having additional maintenance therapy. So, for example, in the trial we report, there were more patients with rash, a common side effect with this drug, and also more serious adverse events. That's 47 versus 34. And more cases of pneumonia, 7 versus 4. So also patient preference should be considered. So some patients might like to come off treatment for a while. And allotinib is an oral drug, so it's very convenient to administer. But of course, patients don't necessarily want to be continually on treatment. So should this be considered as a drug of choice for maintenance treatment? I think pemetrexate should be considered as the first drug of choice. This is what our link commentator to the piece recommends. Pemetrexate has been approved by the FDA and EMA as maintenance therapy in non-small cell lung cancer. And Dr Thomas Stitchcombe, as I mentioned, the link commentator from the University of North Carolina, says it should be the preferred therapy, particularly for those with a non-squamous histology. Now the US FDA have also approved allotinib as maintenance therapy and the EMA have also approved it based on these results. So the next stage for allotinib will be for the NICE Institute to assess the evidence to see whether it meets their cost-effectiveness criteria for use in the National Health Service. Now, Dr Stitchcombe suggests that for patients that have the EGFR mutations, who I mentioned earlier do particularly well, if they have received chemotherapy as their first-line treatment, then perhaps this is the group that should have maintenance allotinib. Now, the next study on breast cancer looked at insulin-like growth factor 1 and IGF binding protein 3 and breast cancer risk. Tell us a bit about IGF-1 and insulin growth factor binding protein 3 and their role in the risk of breast cancer. 
Yes, as you say, our paper's about IGF-1 insulin-like growth factor 1 and its binding protein IGF-BP3. And IGF-1 plays a role in uh, mitosis and also in apoptosis. It has a proliferative effect even in cells that have a damaged DNA. And this is a situation where you'd normally favour apoptosis, that's programmed cell death, as opposed to mitosis, proliferation. So due to its mitogenic effects, IGF-1 is thought to be associated with an increased breast cancer risk. Now there's been some controversy about the relationship between IGF-1 and breast cancer risk, depending on menopausal and oestrogen receptor status. Does this study provide any answer to this? So the group aimed to look in subgroups at differing risk profiles, such as by menopausal status and by oestrogen receptor status. And it had more power to do this because the study was looking at nearly 5,000 cases and nearly 10,000 controls. And what were the results of the study? Well, the authors showed that there was an increase in the risk of breast cancer with the increasing IGF-1 concentrations, as might be expected. But this was seen in both the pre- and the postmenopausal women. And the results by oestrogen receptor status were particularly interesting in that the women with oestrogen receptor positive disease had an increased risk, but those with oestrogen receptor negative disease didn't, suggesting there might be differences in risk according to the crosstalk between the oestrogen and IGF-1 pathways. So the findings support the preclinical findings where oestrogen can increase IGF-1 levels. And how could the results of this study be applied in the context of clinical practice? Well, I would direct listeners to the link comment, and that's by Dr. Michael Pollack from the McGill University in Canada. And he nicely summarises this aspect. So he suggests that it's important to look at the effects of varying IGF-1, but also varying concentrations of insulin can affect cancer risk and prognosis. So this is because when cells are at risk of transforming, they can incorporate not just IGF-1 receptors, but also insulin and hybrid receptors. And he suggests that metformin, a drug that lowers insulin concentrations and has been shown to reduce cancer risk in patients with type 2 diabetes, could be interesting to assess in the context of IGF-1 as well. So he cautions that dietary interventions to reduce IGF-1 levels might not be advisable, as low concentrations can also have negative effects. So, for example, low levels can be associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So with the drugs that currently target IGF-1, they're investigational and they lower the concentrations of IGF-1, but they're being used in a preventive rather than a treatment setting. And Dr. Pollack says it would be better to target patients so that you're targeting those that are at higher risk and to avoid the very high IGF-1 concentrations rather than aiming for treatment of everyone that might fall within the range that's looked at in the study. Now, looking at the June issue, are there any other papers that you'd like to highlight? Um, yes, we have a review on kinase targets in renal cell cancer, and that is with a particular focus on the VEGF pathways and mTOR pathways. And it also looks at new agents that are entering the clinic. And we have an RCT that looks at the use of hypothermia and soft tissue sarcomas with promising findings. Thanks very much, Emma. That was Emma Granger, Deputy Editor of The Lancet Oncology. I'm Eric Kniesner, filling in for Richard Lane, who will be back next month. And you've been listening to The Lancet Oncology podcast for June 2010.